This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, some 500 years ago, men like da Vinci, Galileo, Michelangelo, and others were part of an amazing social renaissance. It was at that time an amazing push to connect the world on various fronts for the first time. Now, authors Ian Gold and Chris Kutarna say that we could be on the brink of another such renaissance. But the forces coming together will benefit from the Internet, the strong presence of digital technology, and artificial intelligence. And this will mean even greater change coming in the future. Chris joins us on the show right now. Chris, welcome. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Thank you very much. Uh, in reading a couple of articles uh, about you, and, and they obviously mentioned the book, they're basically giving you the claim of, of you called the Brexit. Uh, <laughs> do, you want, do you want to take credit for that? Uh, it's, uh, you know, I have to say, in the weeks leading up to Brexit, uh, it was not a popular stance to take. <laughs> right. Um, in the aftermath, of course, we look like sages. Um, but I mean, I suppose, you know, the purpose of our book was to take a step back from what we said, you know, these are shocking times that we live in. And uh, we have lots of facts and analysis, which is important. Uh, but we also need perspective uh, to help stretch our imagination. And, uh, and our perspective said that Brexit, we should see that as the default expectation of what's likely to happen. Uh, it just so happened that that is how it turned out. So as you sit today and and obviously we have so many things going on we i mean brexit is is probably the least uh, of the big issues we obviously have a you know the unbelievable growth in terrorism uh, in the in the last few months we have what's going on here in the united states in the in the political culture we have china's economy which you know i don't think anybody can really get a handle on and we have so many other factors going on with all of this going on you sit back and you say to yourself what uh, that the present moment is a contest. Uh, it's a contest between forces of flourishing genius and flourishing risk. And that the most important thing, the first thing uh, that we all need to do is, is step back uh, and recognize that that's the contest we're in. And which of those forces proves the stronger, that's really going to be what determines uh, how the 21st century unfolds. And we all have a role to play um, in, in, in being a part you know, in shaping our lives to be part of proving one or the other. And really, we, we get to there by, um, you know, we step back and say, if we want to understand the moment we're in, you know, we need that perspective. One great place to get perspective is history, to look to a different time uh, when humanity struggled with similar circumstances, uh, similar stresses, and, and just see how we dealt with it then. And that'll help us have a, a wider set of ideas about what might happen this time around. I mentioned the the as you write in your book about the internet and and the strong digital presence that that obviously uh, is pervasive around the world for the most part uh, right now. What are some of the other kind of key ingredients that you think are in play right now that that we could be headed for this renaissance that you, that you talk about? I mean, in the big picture, we sort of boil it down to three things: uh, new maps and new media and and a new human condition, which is sort of the the three very broad parallels that uh, reshaped European society 500 years ago, 
um, and, and are reshaping our world today. I mean, you already mentioned the Internet. I mean, and, and 500 years ago, um, a man named Johannes Gutenberg uh, brings the printing press to Europe. You know, suddenly flips the economics of information exchange, uh, of knowledge creation, and that had enormous implications. I mean, not only to accelerate science uh, and technology, but also to give new power uh, to extremist movements, um, like the bonfire of the vanities that a man named Savonarola ignited to rip control of Florence from the establishment, the Medici, and, and put his own populist agenda in power. Um, like Martin Luther, who launched a, a, a Protestant Reformation which tore Europe into Catholic and Protestant halves and, and really led us to be thinking about Brexit as something that was, was a real possibility. I mean, when there is widespread social discontent and a new technology available to give that discontent a powerful voice and bind together the people who feel the same way. In, in circumstances like that, we, we just can't take uh, the status quo for granted anymore, which was the big mistake, of course, that David Cameron made when, when he offered the British <laughs> public that, that Brexit vote three years ago in exchange for their loyalty. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he's thinking that one over, uh, you know, a hundred times over. I mean, it's going to be in his political obituary, right? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, political uh, historians, we're, we're always going to start uh, with that story now. And so from one perspective, what, what was the mistake he made there? Did he have bad facts? Did he have bad analysis? He's the Prime Minister of, of Great Britain, so he probably had the best facts and analysis available. Uh, but I think that in a time of rapid upheaval, if all you're looking at are the facts and the analysis, we get into very linear mindsets about what's going to come next. Uh, and what he lacked was imagination to see the time that he was in and to understand that yeah, the status quo uh, was not something, not something to be taken for granted anymore. A, a lot of people would say that, that, that one of the missteps that he made is, I guess, not, I mean, you can have the facts all that you want, but if, if you don't have the feel of the people, mm. then, then you know, the facts don't matter. Uh, exactly right. Exactly right. And I think that that's, um, again, the big mistake. And so, you know, Brexit, as you say, I mean, and it's remarkable that we are actually saying this, that this is sort of the smallest example. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Of, of the kind of a people we're in right now, which is an extraordinary thing to say by, by itself. Um, but, uh, you know, when you live in a time of rapid change, giant upheaval, uh, as we do, you know, the line between yesterday and tomorrow it is very unlikely to be linear, uh, because in the present stands the people, right? Stands us. We are the force of creativity, of originality, of, of unruliness that is uh, responding in, in shocking ways to these straight, stressful circumstances we live in. And, and we are the ones who are breaking um, those linear projections about what could happen. And exactly right, you're exactly right, that he just did not have his pulse on you know, what is the human element here yep. that is going to reshape the status quo? Chris Katarna joins us, co-author with Ian Golden of the book Age of Discovery, Navigating the Risks and Rewards of Our New Renaissance. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Uh, you also have done some consulting work and, and, and talked with various business executives, uh, and, and I'd 
be interested to find out what kind of is the reaction of, of that group of people when you start to bring these topics up to them. And I say that because are they actually aware of this transformation that could be happening? I think that that awareness is building. Um, I think that, and now I'm speaking sort of from a European perspective, which sure. is uh, where I'm based at the moment. Yep. But you talk to senior executives in, in the large British corporations now, and you know, what Brexit has done uh, for business people here is help them to understand that um, you know, the sort of the naive idea of globalization that uh, we carried around in our heads in the 1990s, that opening and connecting up to one another is going to sort of automatically trickle down benefits to everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that that's dead now. That what we've built on that foundation, sort of, we built as high as we possibly could, and now that tower has tumbled down. And what people realize now is that, you know, in fact, when you set that up, you create winners, you create losers as well. Um, and right now, the losers feel like the overall outcome of globalization just hasn't been what they were expecting. And, and so that arrangement is, is, is very unstable. And if we're going to maintain uh, our economic openness and connectedness, then we're going to have to get much more serious about the distribution of the gains and losses. And I think that that message was one that, uh, you know, if you made it five years ago, uh, if you made it ten years ago, it would prompt a very long debate. Whereas today, suddenly, it's, it's sort of the, the received wisdom. It's the truth. Yes, of course. You know, all of these trade agreements, yeah. um, we, we've looked very well after corporate interests. We haven't looked as well after the interests of workers and citizens. And, and certainly now, I think, uh, yeah, in large corporations in Europe, there's, there's a real appreciation or just a belief that that's the new truth. And we need to adapt to that. And, you know, our corporate policies and, you know, our lobbying around trade is, is going to have to adapt to that as well. Uh, Chris Katarna joins us, uh, co-author of the book Age of Discovery. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. I guess, you know, even though you're over there in, in Europe and, and obviously uh, know quite a bit about what's going on over there, what... What do you see as kind of the impact with the United States uh, being uh, obviously the, the biggest economy in the world and, and obviously a big player in a lot of things that happen over in Europe? I mean, the impact of Brexit, but actually I would say just the impact of uh, economic inequality more broadly. Um, and I think you see it now in uh, the politics swirling around the U.S. presidential campaign. Um, you know, the Admittedly, you know, for I think most people, the, the, the shocking viability of uh, Donald Trump's campaign, um, but also, you know, I, I think um, to some extent, uh, Bernie Sanders and his popularity and, and his rivalry with, with Hillary Clinton, you know, it was again just a product of uh, a very broad uh, discontent with the economic order of things. I think uh, McKinsey came up with a report just a couple of days ago noting that for roughly 70% of uh, the middle class across the developed world, over the past 10 years, their real incomes have been flat. Um, and I think now in the United States, we're, we're seeing the, uh, the social consequences of that. And it's, it's, it's really, it's, a, it's an unsettling time, uh, because when people, when we live 
in a tangled society, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, we are not connected anymore. That is language from the 1990s. We are tangled now. And when we live in a tangled society, one of the problems is that cause and effect is very difficult to see. Uh, I mean, a lot of uh, economic hardship across the United States today, um, you know, properly lies on the doorstep of uh, a slowing economy in China. Yeah. That is a very yeah. tenuous cause-effect relationship. But much more immediate in people's lives is uh, the dramatic and visible rise of, of diversity, of, of racial and ethnic diversity in their communities. Uh, for example, you know, the explosive uh, threat of, of terrorism and, and linking that yep. to, to a specific religion. It is very easy um, in, in a fragile, shocking moment like this to place the blame on the big things that we see uh, rather than to soberly reflect, you know, what are some of the underlying causes. So, so as, as a society, uh, now is a, is, is a fragile moment. Uh, I would get your uh, opinion on the fact that, as I mentioned, you, you bring up quite a bit of history and some unbelievable names from history. What do you think that that would be the effect on the path of people like Da Vinci, like Michelangelo, uh, in, in, in this realm that we're in today? Well, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, as you look at the history of, uh, of the first Renaissance, you know, one of, the, one of the people, one of the famous people who, who really had the best grasp of what was happening in uh, the time he lived in was Machiavelli. Uh, you know, and you know, today Machiavelli gets a bad rap because he's you know seen as Machiavellian. I mean, historians themselves nowadays they're kind of uh, they debate whether Machiavelli uh, really was all that Machiavellian. Right. Uh, but that conversation aside, he really had a clear sense. I mean, he he too said that we live in a moment of contest, and one of his uh, pieces of wisdom uh, of advice to his contemporaries, which included Da Vinci and included Michelangelo and all of these, um, is that in a time of rapid upheaval, uh, he said, you know, quote, it is better to be impetuous than cautious. Mm -hmm. We've got to continue to take risks. And it was a very strange thing to say because it seemed very counterintuitive. You know, the more risk, uh, the more fraught with risk our environment becomes, the more we want to hesitate to press pause. Uh, to wait and see how things are going to fall out. Uh, and Machiavelli told all his peers, no, 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 no. I mean, that instinct is exactly backwards. Because in a time of rapid change, whatever our present habits are, they are rapidly becoming outdated, um, ill-suited to the time we live in, even dangerous to maintain. Right. And it's, it's bold action, it's impetuous action that shows the rest of us what's the new way of doing things, right? What's the new wisdom that operates better in the time we live in? And so we need to continue to take risks to reset our expectations and reset uh, our basic habits of action so that we don't just get left behind by the world that's changing around us. You bring up an interesting idea in the book, and and when I say it, probably a lot of people that are listening to us are going to be like, and if you're of a certain age, you probably would say this, that the digital realm has come in so fast and so strong 
that a lot of people don't even remember what it was like before. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I, I'm 49, so I'm I'm kind of I think in that that age group that does remember uh, you know a good bit of what it was like you know realistically before computers were were such a, a big part of our lives. But anybody that's like 35 and younger, that's really they don't even remember that stuff. Mm. No, that's right. I mean, it's it's a sign of how. I think for me, that is a, a perfect example of that we are not in ordinary time. You know, we are living in extraordinary time. That you know, within 25 years, um, the basic structure of our global economy, our politics, you think of the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, yep. the reintroduction of China into our global economic system, and how that's reshaped the world. Uh, so those are the new maps, but also the new media, you know, computers, digitization, social media have so completely reshaped the world we live in that, uh, as you say, I mean, can you remember when a time when if you wanted to share your photographs from the vacation with your friends, that the only way to do that was <laughs> to order a second set of prints yeah. <laughs> and mail them? I, mean, right. I do remember that, but... But very vaguely, or that I had to go to the public library to look up the capital of a country I, I didn't know. I mean, half of, in the developed world, more than half of us remember that time very well. Very well. But that world is gone, uh, and it's never coming back. Well, it's not gone in, in my household, because every, <laughs> every time my kids, and I've got three kids, every time my kids do something, I have to send the file digitally to my mom so that she can print it off on her little color printer that she's got in her in, in her computer in her office and so that she keeps scrapbooks think about the think about the concept of the scrapbook pr- pr- probably nobody under the age of 30 understands what a scrapbook is today that's brilliant but you know what in 15 years it's going to be the biggest thing uh, yeah <laughs> you know and this is sort of something else that's interesting and, and maybe comforting to uh, older generations is that you know while technologies change and circumstances change. Human nature uh, actually remains pretty stable through the generations. I mean, that's partly why it, it actually is possible to look back 500 years, understand how people dealt with the time they lived in then, and, and sort of bring some reliable wisdom forward. Because although the technology environment has completely changed, human, you know, our nature, our interests, what deeply drives us, is still more or less the same. Uh, and so things like scrapbooking, you know, the, the nostalgia for the past, the joy of collecting pieces together and, and, and putting them into some tangible form. I mean, that's, that, there's something deep within us that enjoys that. And that's why, you know, I really do think that in 20 or 30 years, you know, when everyone is suffused in this digital age, uh, you know, there's going to be some trend that says, Look at what, how they used to do this, and wasn't this amazing? And yeah. people are going to start to pick it up and realize that there are some deep things that are satisfying and valuable about interacting with physical stuff, objects, and, and suddenly it will become a trend again. You, you talk a little bit about, about education in the book as well and, and the opportunities that we have uh, there in, in that realm. And obviously that's a very important piece to where we're going to go over the next 50 years. You know... One of the things that my co-author and I uh, consistently say, and it takes more and more courage to say it, especially as you look at 
you know, the headlines from Nice just this morning. Uh, but in the big picture, now is the best time in history to be alive. Um, and those are, you know, basically an assertion based on the big macro stats of health, wealth, but also education. I mean, you know, because of the enormous expansion of higher education in, in places like China and India, you know, there are more people alive right now with a higher education degree than all university degrees awarded in history prior to 1980. Yep. You know, it, was, it was extraordinary, extraordinary. There, there are three and a half billion more literate people alive today than 25 years ago. I mean, virtually the entire incoming generation of adults uh, is going to be literate, which means, you know, 90% of humanity is going to be able to plug into the new knowledge and information networks we've created. And, and throughout human history, information has always been our most precious resource. Always. The, the it all comes down to information in the end. The trick of it is, though, that we can't let opportunities slip through our fingers. And, and I bring that up because, mm. and you probably saw this report several months back from the OECD about about financial literacy. And it's a big topic here in, in, in the United States, especially with the fact that, you know, the U S is not at the, at the top of the list, you know, being the largest economy, you know, that's these, there are little pieces to education where yes, we can be as, as literate as anybody in the history of the world, yet we can't let lots of things fall through the cracks. No, you're exactly right. And I mean, this is, this is really when you start to um, step step deeper from the aggregate and go closer into sort of the situations in countries, right. uh, the situations and topics, and start to understand that while in the big picture, you know, humanity today has more resources than ever before to, um, to seize opportunities and, and to address the problems that we face. You know, there are still enormous challenges ahead of us in terms of getting those resources, you know, the, you know, the, the wealth, the education, the health, um, into the hands of, of those who need them. And I think this is also, again, just sort of circling back to Brexit and how it's changed, I think, how, uh, how we all look at the world now. Um, is just recognizing that um, these things don't happen uh, automatically, you know, that, it, that it does take an awareness that there are going to be winners and losers, there are going to be pockets uh, of society where, that are highly financially literate, right. and pockets where people, you know, probably through no fault of their own, have simply not been exposed to the opportunities to gain financial literacy. Chris, I have to, Chris, unfortunately, yep. I have to end it there. We're at the top of the hour. Thank you very much for joining us. Greatly appreciate your time. Chris Katarna. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.